Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. Our host for today's episode is Nathan Oblak. Welcome back to the podcast for cultural reformation. I'm Nathan Oblak, and I'm once again joined in the Knox Cellar by Dr. Joe Boot and Ryan Aris, and it's good to be back with you both on a, a lovely spring day. Spring is finally here in the Niagara region. and Just uh, about. Uh, just about. Mm. Yeah. We admit to looking somewhat jealously at the weather in some of our more southern ministry partner locations. That's true. <laughs> that is true. But, I don't know, pretty soon I think we could probably take this whole outfit out of the Knox cellar and start podcasting on the balcony. It's a good idea. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. <laughs> not this week, probably not next week either, but we'll get there. Yeah. Get the birds featured on the uh, on the podcast mm. as well. Huh? These are some pretty wild ideas. Oh, yeah. We're just <laughs> overflowing. We've got a lot of good ideas. Well, and one of those great ideas is to discuss God's law for a third podcast in a row. Uh, you know, Hopefully we have more than a couple dozen listeners by the time we're done here. But uh... <laughs> no, it's been uh, it's been so so encouraging to hear the mm-hmm. the many uh, emails and comments that we've had mm-hmm. on this uh, this little mini series in particular. Yeah, and we'll right. deal try to deal with uh, with some of those questions again today. Yeah, and isn't it the case that we've recently seen a very very substantial jump in our listeners i think probably the people listening to the podcast would like to hear about that well i mean if if you look at the past two years of this podcast we've grown 20 fold sure right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so uh yeah we we have many more listeners uh than we're used to around here and it's been a, a blessing and as ryan mentioned the emails have just piled in uh especially over the past several months, and uh, even more so the last few weeks on this topic. A lot of people wrestling with uh, God's law and, and how it applies to today's cultural context, and uh, we, we'd love it if those questions and comments continued to come in. We make a point to read every single one of them. We discuss many of them uh, here around the Study Center, and we're going to deal with some of them specifically again today. And uh, before we really get into that conversation, I wanted to very quickly remind our listeners of our upcoming Mission of God conference on Saturday, May 21st. And this year's theme is Utopianism versus the Kingdom of God. And we'll be addressing the many uh, utopian ideas swirling around us and and how we're to best respond with the truth of Scripture. And uh, the speakers for this year's conference include Andre Schutten. He's our fellow for law and civil discourse. And uh, we have our UK economist, Graham Leach, another one of our fellows, and of course, Dr. Joe Boot will be speaking at the conference as well. And I also want to remind everyone that we have a few spaces left in our H. Evan Runner International Academy, and uh, we continue to see many applications come in from, uh, well, at this point, all over Canada, uh, the United Kingdom even, Texas, uh, California, uh, I, I guess Andrew Sandlin's not the only Christian left in California, so that's good to see. No, his <laughs> wife is there. Oh, yeah, that's right, of course. Yeah. And uh, and even Northern Ireland. Hi, George. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the program's running June 5th to the 15th in Golden, British Columbia, right in the heart of the Rockies. Uh, 
This is usually where Joe tells a joke about the Rockies, but maybe we'll skip that for this week. I'll save it for the program. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So you can apply to the Academy or buy tickets to the Mission of God Conference on our website, EzraInstitute.com. And uh, if you've got a moment, check out our new ministry uh, overview video on our homepage. It's produced by JKB Productions, and we've been really pleased with how it turned out. So you'll find that on our homepage. And Did you mention California earlier? Because California is beautiful. <laughs> there it is. So I think we should give some props to our, there's probably a lot of listeners in California. That's and right. Some That's of them true. have recently hosted some of our fellows to speak and... Uh, mm-hmm. We're encouraged by uh, some of the rumblings from California, actually. That's right. Yeah, actually, yeah. if you look at uh, look at the breakdown, so Joe's book, Ruler of Kings, uh, was just uh, just recently shipped. Mm-hmm. Really appreciate all the uh, all the pre orders and the subsequent orders that have come out. I'm pretty sure we sent one to every state. Just yeah, just um, about maybe perhaps every single one. Yeah, I can't I can't think of one that's mm-hmm. that's missing. Like right. even. The weird little ones. Um, like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Which ones are they, Ryan? <laughs> <laughs> who are we going to offend you, yeah, this week? You know who you are. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, you know, we sent one to like to Rhode Island and Vermont and all of these states that you wouldn't really mm-hmm. you know, assume yeah. that you've uh, got. I love to, Vermont. Yeah, yeah, it is pretty awesome. But, and, uh, and 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 many copies to California. Yeah. Anyway, though. that's that's yeah. what I was getting right. getting at yeah. was many. Many copies, so mm-hmm. appreciate your support, California. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Keep going. Yeah. And yeah, I mentioned uh, just off the top there that uh, many of our listeners have been interested in our recent discussion um, about God's law and how do we apply it today mm-hmm. in the various spheres of life. And uh, Ryan, I wonder if you can take us back to that conversation, help us get uh, get back into it here. Yeah, so as we've uh, mentioned and as we promised uh, last week, We've got a, a part three of this, uh, this series on theonomy, the law of God, the kingdom of God. And we mentioned at, at the end of last week's episode that we've got a few, a few loose ends to tie up here on uh, the nature of law as, as a coercive um, thing, mm-hmm. something that, uh, that is necessarily coercive by its nature, um, as well as the... Uh, the very fact of office bearing, whether that's in the church, in the state or civil sphere, or mm-hmm. anywhere else, to to hold an office is to uh, is to be under the authority of God. Mm-hmm. It's necessarily a limited jurisdiction. So we were we were just going to talk more about the the biblical limits on uh, the different spheres of authority, uh, as well as this uh, this open question that uh, we're not sure about, or a, lot, or a lot of believers are not sure about, you know, what a, how do we actually apply mm-hmm. God's law in society? Mm-hmm. What would it look like? Has that ever been done mm-hmm. where biblical law has been uh, given positive expression in the laws, the laws of, the, of a nation? And of course, we hear around the ministry all the time, there's people contending that that has not been done. Mm-hmm. We're going to deal with that uh, in our discussion, hopefully today. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, Joe, yeah, we uh, we talked about yeah the the coercive nature of law and the uh, the limitations of office bearing. Uh, why don't we jump in there? Mm-hmm. Well, it's important to uh, 
state straight away when people ask questions about the law is that law from a Christian standpoint is the condition of life. So, uh, and we could talk about that from a creational perspective, Mm -hmm. first of all, that Mm -hmm. law, the existence of law, that the cosmos is a law order. Right. It's a and um, every aspect of life is governed by law. The, the right down to your cells in mm. your body, mm. uh, through to um, logical laws of thought in terms of uh, right thinking, in terms of how we would expect people to reason with us, mm. through to our moral and ethical behavior, through to economic life and so forth. All of these different areas of life are governed by law. Right. So the the, the cosmos itself, creation itself is a law order and so the the idea of law or an idea of law is basic to every religious worldview so it's not a question of mm. um whether or not we will believe in the binding authority of law it's always a question of which law right. uh is it just a law of nature um that is somehow um, um, operating under its own entelechy some kind of internal law of its own uh, is it just um, arbit- is is law something that's purely arbitrary? Something that is developed out of the mind of man? Is the, is the mind of man the lawgiver for reality, or is there a creator creature distinction? Is there a living God who gives law for creation, and hmm. all creatures respond right. um, to that law word? Hmm. And uh, you know there is the lawful response of creation to God, so there's a law for creation, there's a lawful response of creation. Mm. Now, of course, human beings who alone are uh, the creatures that God has made who are able to uh, respond in obedience or disobedience to God's norms, which are a type, a certain type of law, mm. um, you know, we don't get a choice as to whether we're going to respond to the law for the cell. Right. Uh, our cells in our body that's right. going on all the time we don't we don't choose about whether we're going to respond to lawfully to the law of gravity right um, you could believe you're subject to a different law but then jump on a jump off a cliff and right. see what happens yeah. there are some people under the influence of drugs or something else who who right. change their minds about whether they're bound by those laws and they don't come to a, a good end hmm. So a certain special kind of law we might call norms, and these norms we can rebel against or obey. And um, many of these are republished in Scripture, uh, in particular in the, the, the Decalogue, in the, in the law of God. And so law by its very nature is coercive. Otherwise, we'd be talking about guidance or advice or mm-hmm. wisdom. Mm-hmm. But when we talk about law, we're talking about both a principle and a sanction that's attached to it. So um, just as in the what we might call the natural world, um, there is, a, with the law of gravity, for example, there's a kind of sanction attached to vi- attempted violations of the law of gravity. Um, in fact, you actually don't violate the law of gravity. All that happens is you can you mm. can work in terms of it if you have a very, very powerful engine or a powerful rocket, Bound by the laws of gravity, you can um, uh, offer a certain amount of resistance to the to the downward pull of the of the Earth. Right. You're but working you're, with those, laws. but you're still working in terms mm. of those laws. Right. Um, so, law by its very nature is coercive and and 
uh, when positivized by human beings, it is it remains coercive. Um, if the police pull you over for speeding, it's not a piece of advice. There's a sanction attached to it. You're going to get a ticket. You're going to get, at the very least, you're going to get a lecture. More than likely, you're going to get a, get a ticket. You might even get points on your license. Those are just in the, uh, the sort of everyday non-criminal um, issues in life. There's, there's laws around uh, payment of our, our taxes and mm. uh, the everyday um, requirements of re- regulation and law. Um, and there's constitutional law and criminal law and so on and so forth. But it's all coercive. You're not in mm. the realm of advice. And so the question really becomes, and perhaps this story actually illustrates it, for, for us well. Um, uh, some, uh, maybe a couple of years ago, I was actually sat here at the inst- at the uh, study center in a meeting. Um, and it was a meeting with uh, several pastors and several professors from a seminary that shall remain nameless. And um, we were having a conversation about the programs. I was telling them about, about the various programs that we were offering in terms of mm. biblical worldview training. And there was a good deal of um, interest and enthusiasm in the room. Lots of stories about from these men about children who'd gone off the rails and family members who'd gone off the rails and desperately needed equipping in, a, in an understanding of how Scripture views these various issues, often to do with sexuality or other issues of identity that are so prominent now in our culture. Um, but one of these individuals was sat there pretty glum and pretty sour-faced. And um, at one point, he just interrupted the conversation and he said... Um, aren't we ignoring the elephant in the room? And uh, I was expecting Dumbo to fly past or something. Um, I, I, so I didn't quite know what he was talking about. So I said, um, which elephant are you referring to? He said, and he, he paused and he looked at me and he said in front of all of these other leaders, are you trying to Christianize Canada? And um, yeah. And I said, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, I'm not trying to Islamicize it. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to paganize it. What are you trying to do with it? Mm-hmm. And the, the, as the conversation went on, although he didn't have much to say to that, um, the it became clear that the issue was, well, uh, do I believe that God's word should have a role to play in public life? Do I actually believe that God's law word is relevant for the public space, for the public sphere? Do I believe what the, go- the the gospel says about the kingdom of God has application, immediate application and implications for the cultural life of human beings? And of course, in particular, this question of law, because you know, are you trying to Christianize brings with it this sense of impose. Mm-hmm. So it isn't actually ever a question of um, whether, but which. That's right. So you can... Uh, if you don't want God's law to govern, if you don't want the authority of God's word to govern, then you can have pagan law. Mm-hmm. Well, take a look at the laws of the Greco-Roman world before uh, the Christian gospel came. Take a look at um, the laws of Babylon or Assyria or Egypt. Uh, do you want Marxist law? Do we want the law of the atheist countries? Go to North Korea today. Uh, go to communist China. Do, you, do we want that sort of law? Uh, do we want um, Islamic law, Sharia law? Well, go to Saudi Arabia, go to Indonesia. Uh, it's not a question of uh, go and have a look at those law orders because mm-hmm. every culture is a law order. 
So it's not a question of whether, but which. which right. And do you want to be, do we want our lives to be in the realm of law, which is the realm of coercion? It's the realm of, I should say, principle and sanction. Mm. Do we want our lives governed by the law of liberty, as James called it, the law of love? For love is the fulfillment of the law, Paul says in Romans 13. Do we want that this law that God says is love of neighbor? and love of self, love of God, love of neighbor? Or do we want some other law that actually um, is rejection and resentment against God, and in the end, hatred of our neighbor? And so that's what it really comes down to. We are dealing with this this question of not whether. It's a bit like the whole question of uh, theocracy, right? Every social order is a theocracy. It's governed by some divinity concept mm-hmm. and some idea of sovereignty is it the sovereignty of the people the sovereignty of the state or the sovereignty of god and it's the same with law what kind of a law order do we want to live in and there are a limited number of choices right humanistic abstract pagan law which has shown its cruelty and depravity throughout the centuries do we want islamic law do we want god's law and uh i think i know my answer to that yeah would you rather have lived with Israel? Think about it this way. Had you lived a thousand years before Christ, would you have preferred to live with the Israelites under God's law or in Babylon or Assyria? And, uh, well, I hope the question answers itself. Well, it's funny because in a way it does and it doesn't because the Israelites were actually were expelled, as everyone knows, mm-hmm. for what? For not observing the Sabbaths? and for following in the ways of the pagan nations around them. Mm-hmm. So for abandoning the laws that God had given them, they were disinherited. Yeah. Well, and of course, Jesus um, uh, himself deals with the hypocrisy, mm-hmm. actually, of um, even the Pharisees and the teachers of the law of his own time in Israel. Um, interestingly enough, because of the fact that they had abandoned God's law for their own traditions. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is actually important that we we note what Jesus actually said about the application, because we're talking about applications today, you know, what Jesus actually said about the applicability of God's law. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, the Apostle Paul has some beautiful um, applications of the law of God. Think about, I think it's Ephesians 6, where he's talking about the family. And he talks about the first commandment with a promise. Honor your father and your mother mm-hmm. that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the earth. Interestingly, he changes that there. The only change he makes is instead of saying in the land, he says in the earth. Hmm. Uh, you you see him talking about actually the proper support of those who lead the churches, who labor in the word. He says, do not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. So he takes a fundamental principle of the law and then he applies it actually to the remuneration of pastors. So for all those pastors out there who may reject God's law, sounds like their congregations are free to pay them nothing. Hmm. Um, Because actually God's law requires that those who labor in the word are worthy of double pay, double honor. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that Paul feels totally free to make that abstraction and even to say, this wasn't written for cattle. This was written for us. Right. Mm-hmm. That's a critical point. That, and he, he uh, the scripture makes that, of course, in the New Testament, tells us that these things were written for our instruction. Yeah. 
right? This is for us, it's for our benefit. So you see things like that scattered throughout the New Testament, these, these applications of the law of God, positivized in, this, in their setting. But the Lord Jesus himself, I mentioned Ephesians 6, where the Apostle Paul's talking about the family and honoring parents. Well, in Matthew 15, and in the parallel passage in, in Mark chapter 8, um, there is a very specific instance where Jesus is talking about, he says in, in Mark 7, beginning in verse 6, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines, what? The commands of men. Teaching as doctrines, the commands of men. And he goes on, disregarding the command of God, you keep the tradition of men. He also said to them, you completely invalidate God's command in order to maintain your tradition. And he says, for Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. And that is the uh, biblical requirement with respect to honor of parents, not assaulting one's parents. This has to do with incorrigible uh, delinquents and so on. Mm -hmm. Um, but But he goes on verse 11, but you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me is korban, that is a gift committed to the temple, you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. You revoke God's word by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many similar things. And uh, you can look at those passages in in Mark 7, Matthew 15. You see Jesus' view of the law, Mm -hmm. and actually not only his view of of the principle, but of the the precept, the sanctions associated with it. Um, And his key point there is that you are setting aside, you're disregarding God's command in favor of human commands, of your traditions. And uh, are we not in the modern church guilty of something Mm -hmm. pretty similar? Um, Where we, we find ourselves you know, I sometimes call it regional holiness, where, you know, you go to some regions and it's like, you know, don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. And, you know, you've got all of these sort of personal proclivities of different churches about what you should do with this and that and the approaches to tithing and this, that and the other. Um, but on the weighty matters of the law, which Jesus talks about there in Matthew 15 in the parallel uh, passage, um Again, talking about the tr- tradition of the elders, he, he he goes to the prophet Isaiah. And w- there's this setting aside of the things that matter in God's law that are significant in the law of God in favor of minutiae mm. uh, or human tradition. And I think that's one of the big things that we're guilty of in the modern Western church is that we have all our personal proclivities around styles of this and preferences about that. Um, and then adopt a statist attitude and a, a humanistic attitude towards law for the public space. And in doing so, we set aside the commandment of God. Mm-hmm. You know, and Joe, we very often get this comment around here, uh, thinking through the posit- positivization of the law, is that it would be disastrous because this we, we don't live in a, a Christianized society. And, and, you know, sometimes in conversation, these people hold to this magical percentage that maybe if, you know, 90% of the population was Christian, maybe that's our opportunity to positivize God's law. But actually, if you look at our cultural heritage, there have been 
many instances of the positivization of God's law. And maybe you can walk us through a little bit of, of that heritage. Well, the first place to start, I think, uh, with that discussion is with Scripture itself, because when Paul talks about the um, application of God's law um, into society, uh, he's talking about it not in a Christian context. Mm -hmm. He's talking about it in the grip of the pagan world, uh, in the Greco-Roman world. And in terms of sort of formal positivization, you'd have to probably fast forward to the Justinian Code, mm. Uh, mm. where, you know, four or five centuries later, where um, the Empress Theodora and her husband Justinian, who's emperor, that's a very interesting story. I talk mm. a, bit, a bit about that in my book, Mission of God, actually begin to positivize the principles of God's law within Roman law. So when Paul is writing about this, he, he's not talking to a culture that's uh, um, anxious to apply the law of God, mm. but he's telling the church, he's telling God's people about the function and the role of God's law. And um, I may have mentioned this in last week's podcast, but it, it bears repeating 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, uh, beginning in verse 6, uh, uh, Paul says, Some have deviated from these and turned aside to fruitless discussion. They want to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they are saying or what they are insisting on. But we know that the law is good, provided one uses it legitimately. And now Paul goes into what the Reformers regarded as a classic statement of the civil application of the law. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers. Well, there's a civil application, right? It's mm. for murderers, for the sexually immoral and homosexuals, for kidnappers, liars, perjurers. There you've got a legal application into the courts. And for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching based on the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was entrusted to me. So Paul includes the law in, this, in the proclamation of the gospel. And he's telling us there, here's a legitimate use of the law. And then interestingly enough, of course, in Romans chapter one, where he's describing the very pagan culture that we've just talked about in verses 28 through 32, the Apostle Paul says, because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, so we're dealing with a pagan, rebellious culture, God delivered them over to a worthless mind to do what is morally wrong. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. It's interesting undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful, although they f know full well God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. So for the apostles, the, uh, the, the law was relevant to the culture. It was applicable to the culture. And there was, of course, a recognition that any positivizing of God's law within cultural history was related to the gospel of the blessed God. It was going to be related to the progressive reception of the gospel. Why did it take several centuries before we get to the Justinian Code and things like basic rights for wives and children? Right. 
uh, in the pagan world? Well, because it's the seasoning effect that took time of the gospel. And as people become awakened to the reality of God's righteousness and holiness, they start to demand righteous laws. And, of course, that is the history of um, our own Western culture. You know, am I trying to Christianize Canada? What else would I be trying to do with it? Of course, we are trying to Christianize Canada in accordance with the gospel of the blessed God. We're trying to do the same uh, in the United States, in the United Kingdom, um, because we believe that God's gospel, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and his law, is a blessing to all the nations. Mm -hmm. And it's a progressive thing. So it doesn't happen overnight. It didn't happen overnight in our own uh, history. Uh, maybe we can come back to some specifically Canadian illustrations um, in, in a moment, but uh, maybe a, uh, a helpful place to start would be to talk about the, the common law tradition. Okay, Joe, so that's, uh, that's great thinking through uh, the positivization uh, in the New Testament, but uh, I wonder if you could take us to uh, some more modern instances of uh, how we got to where we are today. Mm -hmm. Well, the Justinian Code that I mentioned is a sort of significant starting point in the Western legal tradition, and then you've got the various Germanic codes um, that... Uh, that, that spread out through Europe. Um, for those really interested in this sort of story, Harold Berman's double, uh, you know, two-volume work, Law and Revolution, um, is, uh, is a really fascinating read. Um, but in terms of the, um, you know, the, as you mentioned, Nathan, mm -hmm. the question often comes mm -hmm. up is, well, you know, who's ever tried to apply God's law? That's right. never been done. Mm -hmm. um, no wrong. Uh, in fact, um, you know, the, the, the story of biblical law in um, Western culture, as I say, begins in the Greco-Roman world, and, and the first major impact it made was on the Justinian Code. Um, but the, the perhaps the most significant in this regard uh, that both helps us understand our own history and also the way biblical law has functioned is the common law tradition, right? The common law tradition, which is our tradition in England, in Canada, and uh, in the United States, or at least most of Canada except Quebec. Um, and, uh, you know, we see it reflected um, in things like the, the Lord's Day Act in the early part of the 20th century. Right. We'll, I'll come back to that in just a moment. Um, but some of the sort of history, and um, this, is, uh, this is really, really significant. Uh, the common law tradition is one of the unique the most unique contributions, actually, of the Anglosphere, of the of the English-speaking peoples, because um, the the continental legal tradition today is uh, essentially deductive. So that means a, 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 a law gets written down, some sort of statute, from which, um, basically drawn from first principles. So you have this idea of first principles, and then you get this law written down, and then those principles are applied to a particular case. So you have um, an, essentially an abstract principle, mm -hmm. and then you expect judges to apply an abstract principle to a particular case, whereas the common law is something that's built up case by case. It's actually one of the reasons why England does not have a written constitution. Mm -hmm. uh, the, these traditions, these inherited institutions and inherited traditions built up case by case. And so each decision serves as the starting point for the next dispute. And we call that legal precedent. Mm -hmm. 
So that's something we still very much recognize today in our own tradition. So it's a rather than being a sort of abstract or rationalistic procedure, it's an empirical procedure, right? You're actually discovering the meaning of the law. Mm. Um, Roger Scruton, the English philosopher, actually, um, the late Roger Scruton, uh, actually put it this way, and I'm quoting now, he says, the common law is no more made by the judge than the moral law is made by the causist. Uh, rather, he, he argues that it's essentially discovered. You discover the implications, the significance of the law in stages. And so the relevance of this is that basically in the ninth century, um, Alfred the Great, the only king called the Great actually in, in um, the history of Britain, um, Alfred the Great begins the first codification of English law. Mm-hmm. And he begins with the Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. So the Ten Commandments functions as the standing law. So there's God's law. And based on the Ten Commandments, the common law tradition develops. Now, in the Bible, that's what we call case law. So the the, the Bible has exactly the same approach to law. It doesn't begin with abstract uh, ideological concepts formatted then in terms of a law that then you now make deductions from. Rather, you have God's law, and then you have cases that come up, and each case functions then empirically as precedent for the next. Mm. And actually, you read in the book of Deuteronomy that when uh, Moses is advised by his father-in-law Jethro to organize the peoples in terms of thousands and five hundreds and hundreds and so on, these actually were, we learn from the Bible, courts, lower courts. Mm -hmm. So This was the beginnings of the common law tradition. Actually, it's there in Israel. Mm. It's remarkable to think about it and to see it, is that Moses at that time was hearing all of the cases, and Jethro says, you are going to be absolutely exhausted and wrecked by this. By the time we've... This cannot be sustained. So why don't you divide the people up? This is basically the transition of Israel from being a patriarchy uh, to a patriarchal clan Mm. to a nation. And so it's organized in terms of courts, hundreds, five hundreds, thousands. And Moses is to his basically functions as the highest court. He's the essentially a high court justice, and only the toughest cases go to him. So the common law tradition is built on that in Israel. And you begin with the Ten Commandments, and then it's cases. So when you look in the Older Testament, you see all the, the case law. This That is the laws outside of the Ten Commandments. For example, don't murder. Well, how do we know the difference between murder and manslaughter? Well, it's in the case law. Mm-hmm. Um, so when people talk about, oh, well, you know, we've, but we, 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 you know we, we accept the Ten Commandments, but, you know, we don't accept the civil law. There, there is no section called civil laws in the Older Covenant. I mean, it's a useful device to, 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 to think about laws with a civil application rather than the ceremonial priestly application. But what you're actually looking at is common law. Um, you're looking at the standing law given by God and then the applications made by the various courts to specific cases. And that's why when the Puritans were looking at this in the 16th century in the Westminster Confession and uh, in um, in the 17th century in New England and so on, um, they recognized that they were looking at the general equity of these laws. Mm-hmm. So the case may not be a case that's going to come up 
today. Like, I mean, how many people are fencing their roofs, for example, in North America? Now, you have roofs that are angled so that the snow slides off in Canada. You don't have parties on your roof. So we don't have laws about fencing the roof. We don't boil the kid in its mother's milk. So some of these laws were to do with specific instances, specific cases that were being dealt with then. So we're looking at the general equity of mm-hmm. those laws. Now, if, if there is still a, the same case mm-hmm. still today, right. well, there we have legal precedent. Mm-hmm. We've got the legal precedent in the case law if there is still mm-hmm. the similar kind of cases. But some of them, because culture has changed from a, an agrarian, mm-hmm. nomadic people to a highly industrialized technological society, the kinds of cases mm-hmm. for positivizing God's law mm-hmm. are going to be different. Right. Some but the principles be, remain. But the basic right. principles remain, right. right? So if there is a case that is very close or very similar, there is your precedent. So mm-hmm. that's what Alfred the Great was doing. That's what right. the common law tradition does mm-hmm. uh, as it begins there. By the 10th century, England's a nation, mm-hmm. and it's organized similarly to Israel and Moses and Jethro around the hundreds courts and the shires. And uh, we have the, the the common law being built on the standing law, the Ten Commandments, various passages from the Book of Acts and the New Testament. And the meaning of this unfolds, it's discovered uh, uh, practically. Now, related to that, because these courts were uh, essentially forms of government, um, these courts form the foundation of what we now know as parliament, mm. parliamentary democracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, which again is fascinating, which is why Israel was becoming a nation when mm. Jethro advised Moses to, to organize the courts uh, in, in, uh, in, 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 in terms of this you know, graded structure. You have, you have a nation being established. By the 10th century, England's a nation. And um, the, the earliest expression of what we would today call parliament was the Witten in the Middle Ages. Uh, the the the, the Wittons, beginning uh, with and probably predating even, but certainly with Alfred the Great, mm-hmm. Witten just means wise men, and the wise men would come together, and they would deliberate uh, over the issues of the people, um, and that begins what we today know as Parliament. And what are the Wittons doing? Well, they're applying the law, they're applying case law, they're a, a kind of a legislative body. Um, So Parliament begins. Then, of course, we know from our constitutional history, most people will have heard of Magna Carta, 1215. What's that doing? What's the function of Magna Carta? The fundamental issue with Magna Carta is placing the king under the law. Mm, Right. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, don't forget you'd had a free church in England um, from about the seventh century onward. A free English church uh, wasn't ruled by Rome. And um, so the issue of, you know, uh, the, 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 the kings or the, the popes and their relationship, that was a, that's a much later issue in England. Mm-hmm. So you have this free church uh, applying church, their own church law, and you have this, this nation functioning in terms of these courts. And Magna Carta, of course, a dispute between King John and some of the barons and so on, um, and it's around... The, the lex rex. It's around mm. the issue of is the king law or is right. the law king? Now, what's mm. the basic principle? Well, it's that the law is king. Mm. And in order for the law to be king, that law must be superior to mm-hmm. the king himself. Right. 
And um, it's very interesting to note that actually prior to the Norman invasion of England, England didn't have a feudal system. It wasn't uh, an, a hereditary aristocracy ruling uh, England. Um, that came with the Normans. A feudal system was imposed upon England uh, with um, the Normans. Mm-hmm. So, the, so, the, so the, literally, the, the, the law was king. Mm-hmm. Well, now, this question with Magna Carta was the king was trying to do things that were, were violating um, uh, parliament or the early form of parliament um, and its freedoms and, 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 the, and the rights, what we would call the rights of freeborn Englishmen. And Magna Carta was essentially saying, no, God is sovereign. Mm-hmm. And so the king must be under the law. And that brings us to some more familiar, more recent history mm-hmm. um, with the the Puritan Revolution in England, the English Civil War, Oliver Cromwell, uh, which was an evangelical movement, by the way. So for all those who think, you know, when has the God's law ever been applied? Well, take a look at, you know, read my book, Mission of God. Take a look at um, the uh, revolutionary period in England. Look mm-hmm. at the kind of laws that Oliver Cromwell and his government were passing, how they were repealing inhumane paganized applications of the law, bringing it back to a biblical orientation. And um, uh, you see, again, there is a fundamentally a conflict between a, a king, a Catholic king, who's trying to assert divine right. I'm going to rule over, mm-hmm. I am law. Mm-hmm. Remember what God said to the king in Israel. He was to study the law and he was to read it daily. Why? So that he wouldn't be raised up and lifted up above his people. Right so that he wouldn't elevate himself, but actually he was to submit himself to the law of God. Well, that principle carries right over into our our own constitutional history. Mm -hmm. Magna Carta, the English Civil War. No, Charles, the answer is no. Hmm. You cannot do whatever you like. You cannot act as a tyrant. You are not the law. The law is king, and you must be limited in terms of the law. And in um, 1643, you have the Solemn League and Covenant. That was the Scottish Covenanters and the English Parliament covenanting with God to be a Christian nation that would obey the law of God and the gospel of God and advance the law and gospel of God. Many people are not aware of the Solemn League and Covenant of 1643. Sworn by the English Parliament itself. That's our constitutional history. And it was an oath to serve God under the lordship of the of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, and then of course uh, a little later we have the glorious revolution, the bloodless revolution. So again, the issue was you got James II on the throne. Uh, his Catholicism is a real rancor to the people. They're very upset. They're very dissatisfied with what's going on. He is trying to assert certain powers that they don't think he should have that he hasn't got. So they invite his nephew William of Orange. He's standholder in the Netherlands, Protestant to come and take charge. He lands, he's on his way to London. At that point, Charles II flees to France Mm -hmm. and you have this bloodless, it's called the Glorious Revolution, Mm -hmm. um, in which now at this point, uh, the parliaments is made and its rights are are made totally permanent. So the king is permanently, the royalty is permanently restricted and delimited by the law and by Parliament. I mean, that happened to a large degree with the Normans, but it was this was really the ratification of that in the 17th century, the Glorious Revolution, and that the that England would be a Protestant evangelical nation under the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that was the fundamental issue. So it's sometimes called the Orange Revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And it's what follows in 1689 is the Bill of Rights, mm -hmm. the English Bill of Rights and the affirmation of these fundamental freedoms that we know today. And uh, you only have to look at, you know, for those who think, you know, did we really, uh, was, was God's law ever positivized? Well, you know, go and, go and look at- There's a few examples there. <laughs> there's a few. And go and look at the, the laws of New England. Go and look at John Cotton's Laws of New England, mm. the ab his abstract of the Laws of New England in 1641. Mm. And you will see how the USA, what was before the, it became the United States of America, but you will see how the US colonies there in New England were being governed. They were being governed specifically in terms of the law of God. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, in 1776, um, sometimes our American friends get this wrong a little bit, the, the, um, the Declaration of Independence, the American Revolution. American Revolution wasn't Americans versus the English. It was British people in the colonies uh, asserting the rights of freeborn English people. So the the uh, that famous proclamation, you know, the, the British are coming, that was never said. It was the regulars are out. That is, the regular army is coming. Hmm. Um, actually, George Whitfield, interestingly enough, uh, was warning the colonists about what the king, King George, was was planning for, for the colonies. And um, he cautioned them about uh, what may be ahead in terms of tyranny. And... Um, so you had basically this was a cousins conflict, right? Uh, it was it was a conflict between cousins. What was it about? It was about the law is king. You cannot mm. tax us. You cannot take away our freedoms. You cannot act as a tyranny over us without proper representation in Parliament, um, and uh, hence the American Revolution and the Declaration of Independence. Much of it is basically a rewording of the 1689 Bill of Rights. So that's why Winston Churchill said, well, you know, the American is the Englishman left to himself, right? It was a reassertion of, the, of English rights, of fundamental freedoms based in the word of God, based in the law of God, mm. that brought about the um, American Revolution. So there you've got just a few examples before we have a bit of a discussion about Canada and some specific sure. bills. But yeah. that's, a, that's like a whistle-stop tour yeah. of our constitutional history and the, the role that biblical law, common law, has has played within it. And it really is no wonder that uh, as we've turned our backs on God's law here in the West, there is this concerted effort to tear down the constitutional history you've just described. Right. Mm. You've got uh, uh, you've got the absurd attempt in the UK to talk about British values, um, to sort of reinvent uh, values politically. Mm. In, in Canada, of course, we had the, the, in 1982, we had the, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. That was the brainchild of a neo-Marxist, uh, Pierre Trudeau, actually a bunch of revolutionary uh, lawyers in mm. Quebec, um, sort of uh, with their modernist and um, sort of only neo-Catholic, sort of neo-Orthodox thinking, um, you know, believing you needed a total break with the past. That's what they wanted. They wanted a total break with the past. They wanted a new order. And so we have this, this notion of a continental-style, Scandinavian-style uh, charter, a sort of written constitution that was fundamentally about a break um, mm. with the past. And uh, in the U.S., uh, of course, you have the, uh, the revisionists, the constitutional revisionists, not, mm. rather than mm. originalists, mm. who are trying to remake the constitution in their own image uh, and reinterpret it to suit their liberal progressive ideals. And hate America, 
hate mm-hmm. America's past. I mean, that's, of course, what critical theory is all about. It's mm-hmm. about the that's deconstruction right. of the past, whether it's the UK, Canada, or the United States. And along with that comes, you know, mass revisionism of our, of our history and of our, and of our constitutional in- inheritance. Mm-hmm. So, Joe, th- this is interesting. This is worthwhile. Um, it's, you know, evident how that history has shaped us. But you've alluded to the, the Canadian case a couple of times. Why don't we go there? Why don't we deal with a, uh, you know, a, God, a principle of God's law that was active up, you know, within our own lifetime? Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm talking about uh, the Lord's Day Act and the, mm-hmm. uh, the repeal of that in, uh, in 1985. Yeah. And I just, I want to uh, quickly read out a, uh, a listener submitted question that, to, that touches on exactly this. So... They write that uh, one of the reasons that I think many professing Christians don't believe God's law is relevant in their life is that they don't see the practical implications of it lived out in believers' lives. So, Joe, could you share your understanding of how this latter portion of the fourth commandment would be lived out? And that's uh, the command, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's worth a, 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 a short preamble uh, by saying that um, Canada, of course, was founded as a Christian dominion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, it, there were certain weaknesses, certain limitations built in early on. Canada, of course, didn't have a revolution like the Americans. That's why we're still a constitutional monarchy. And that doesn't mean we're not a um, the state. Isn't something that's public. Republic, res publica, really means the state is a public affair, and that's true in constitutional monarchies as well. But the that sort of reassertion of the sixteen eighty nine Bill of Rights never really happened in Canada, and so we um, we were uh, loyalists came up here, as you know. And um, we were a very conservative country, but also more hierarchical than the United States, more um, sort of inclined towards um, establishment, uh, if not formal, then eventually informal, uh, and a little bit more statist in our orientation, you know, a bit, bit more oriented toward, more comfortable with high taxation and, and these sorts of things. So that's actually an interesting holdover, right, from that period in the Canadian psyche, um, is that there wasn't this firm reaffirmation of these um, of, of the Bill of Rights in the same way. Uh, nonetheless, what a wonderful claim to being a Christian nation Canada has. Uh, Tilly, of course, advocated for the, our, our coat of arms, admare uske admare, from sea to sea, he shall have dominion from sea to sea, Psalm 72, verse 8. That's right. Canada Dominion, 1867, the Canadian Dominion, that's how we were formed because it was to be Christ's dominion. Mm-hmm. In fact, in the um, uh, for for much of our history, in fact, as as recently as I think the nineteen fifties, there were a lot more people in church per capita in Canada mm-hmm. than the United States, right. significantly more. Mm-hmm. So, um, it we we have this rich um, Christian tradition, rich, rich heritage, and actually the Lord's Day Act. I think it was nineteen oh six. Um, and you know, maybe we can check that while we're, we're talking here, but because I, I don't want to give people the wrong date, but I think it was 1906. Uh, and it's very interesting to read the debates in the Senate 
uh, around the Lord's Day Act because you get these liberal senators standing up and talking about the uh, the necessity of obedience to God's law and obedience to both tables of the law. Uh, again, I deal with this in, in Mission of God, um, but the, the requirement that we actually... Uh, pay attention to God's law, and they would, in their speeches in this beginning of the 20th century, they'd be talking and illustrating how we confirm God's law with respect to murder, we would confirm God's law with respect to perjury, and they'd be going through all the laws of God where we, this is a debate in the Senate, (laughs) where where they're talking about all the laws of God that we affirm by statute, in other words, where we have positivized law in Canada in terms of the law of God. 1906 that's correct so thank you so we 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 see this um the in these debates and interestingly enough some senators saying that if we do not honor god's law with respect to the sabbath we will go down if we enter it they said upon the downgrade Mm -hmm. we will go down as a nation by doing so they warned us over a hundred years ago that if we set at variance the, the 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 law of God in terms of the Sabbath, then we would go down as a nation by doing so, um, which is a is I mean it's it's absolutely remarkable when you think about the level of political discourse now. So anybody again who says the law of God, you know, when has that ever been positivized mm-hmm. in your own country, mm-hmm. right here in Canada? Mm-hmm. Read the debates around the Lord's Day Act. Read the statements of even the Liberal senators. There's a reason the Lord's Day Act passed. It reflected similar Sabbath laws in England, and it's relatively recent. It's within our lifetime, all of us sitting around this table, Mm -hmm. that these Sabbath uh, laws in England and in Canada have been repealed. Now, this is very interesting in in, in this point, too, is that our interaction right now with legislation in Canada in the last 50 years or so has basically been the repealing of biblical law. So... We have been interacting constantly with biblical law in Canada. I'll give you three examples. Blasphemy laws, recently repealed. Hmm. Sabbath day laws, recently repealed. Radical changes in divorce law. Um, And I had one more on the tip of my tongue. It'll come back to me. Uh, But we have been, whether it's the Sabbath, whether it's blasphemy, oh yeah, and the death penalties surrounding murder as well. So penology, also we've been repealing God's law. Um, In fact, right up until about 1950, you could be executed for rape in Canada. Hmm. That was the law. Uh, So the death penalty was available to the civil magistrate uh, for the crime of rape. Now, you're unlucky if you go to prison. Uh, so those things, we'll, we'll touch on that in a second when we just end with a, a brief uh, survey of penology. But the, uh, the, it may be a slightly longer episode today, but that's good because we're having fun. Mm-hmm. Um, so so the, 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 the Lord's Day Act was, was important to Canadians. It was important that we obeyed God's law with respect to the Sabbath. And it wasn't until 1985 that the Sabbath... Uh, law was repealed. And why 1985? Well, you're three years off the back of the new charter, right? right? So the mm-hmm. British North America mm-hmm. Act basically re- repealed or modified. And now you've got this these abstract, so, and you can see how immediately what happens to common law? What happens to the legal precedent of common law is it starts to be eroded by rationalistic abstract principles interpreted by activist judges 
And we entered on a, an era since 1982 of judicial activism in Canada, where essentially unelected, an unelected judiciary is setting the tone for the nation. Mm. Cadre of elites on the bench, uh, remaking Canada in terms of its own uh, image. And um, so the Lord's Day Bill, Sabbath laws were embraced in the West as a principle of freedom, as deliverance from slavery. Mm -hmm. that's right. You couldn't be forced to work seven days a week. Mm -hmm. And that's how it was positivized. And by the way, Sabbath law is not simply mosaic. Sabbath right. law is creational. Right. So when the Sabbath law is stated in Scripture, the reference is to creation. Because in, in six days, the Lord made heavens and earth. So the creational pattern of six days of work and a day of rest is a creational pattern. And as Jesus himself said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the, the, this pattern is freedom. It's mm. deliverance. Mm. It's liberty. The Sabbath was made for man. Mm -hmm. We weren't made for the Sabbath. It wasn't the Sabbath law. Let's have an, God didn't say, I want an abstract law of Sabbath. And I'm going to make, no, it was the Sabbath law is a gift. Right? The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath day. Mm. So it's a gift. It's freedom. It's liberty. And that was how it was received in the West. Mm -hmm. So the repealing of it means, of course, that you can be required by your employer to mm -hmm. work on a Sunday. Right. You can be required to, to labor. You can, mm -hmm. you can simply be required to, to um, do the bidding mm -hmm. of your employer, mm -hmm. and you cannot insist upon Sabbath rest. Right. Mm -hmm. And, of course, there's a decline of attendance in worship that follows on mm -hmm. from that. I mean, you know, there was a general recognition in the 1960s in Canada that Christendom was dead, uh, that, uh, you know, the, the, the various liberalizing, if it's a longer story, we're doing it, we should do another podcast on, on how sort of mm -hmm. Canada drifted mm -hmm. away from the Lord. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think that would be worth doing at some mm -hmm. point, but the, this, this was a critical moment of de-Christianization, 1985. Mm. So was 1982, but 1985 was a key moment of de-Christianization. The Sabbath was a gift. And, and, and as the Lord Jesus taught us when he interpreted the Sabbath, that's reflected in the fact that he said, you know, if your donkey falls into a pit, in other words, if your car goes into a ditch today, a modern positivization of this mm -hmm. law, you're going to call the tow truck, mm. right? Necessary work is okay, mm -hmm. Right. If you're working at the the, um, the the coal power station or the nuclear power plant, you can't just say, "Oh, never mind the the control rods. Uh, it's my you know, it's the Sabbath." Uh, the necessary work is necessary work. Mm -hmm. Okay. If your donkey, if your ass falls into a pit, you're going to take it out. Um, but the point of the Sabbath is that one day in seven is to be devoted to rest mm -hmm. and rejoicing. And it's a recognition when we rest on the Lord's Sabbath, what we're doing is we're recognizing that the universe and its functioning doesn't depend on me. Mm -hmm. Right. That I can afford to take Sabbath, that I can afford to rest and rejoice in the Lord and mm -hmm. celebrate the Lord and his goodness, his kindness, his redemption, his mm -hmm. life, his renewal. Because... There is a Sabbath rest, the writer of Hebrews says, for the people of God. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, you know, the celebration of the Sabbath from the early church shifted to the Sunday because of the resurrection, because that's the significance of the Sabbath, the fullness of the reality of 
creational law in the Sabbath is that Christ has redeemed us, we're renewed in him, and we can rest in the Lord. Mm -hmm. And it's a gift. Right. And if you want to be a slave, mm -hmm. reject Sabbath law. Right. If you want to what, be a what, free man. Yeah, what, what a visible example of how rejection of God's law leads to slavery. Right. And this is what the communist states tried to do. Mm -hmm. They tried to abolish the six-day working week right. yes. and, and, and uh, invent new ideas or, and make people work through. And it failed. Mm -hmm. It failed because it's creation law. People, they didn't see any increase in productivity when they set aside the Sabbath law in the Soviet Union, for example. Mm -hmm. In fact, they saw declines in productivity despite forcing people to work through. So if you want freedom, it's the law of liberty. Mm -hmm. You want to be a slave? Abandon God's law. Mm -hmm. You want to be a free man or woman? Embrace uh, the law of God. I think that's beautifully illustrated in the Lord's Day Act. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, just as we wrap up, Joe, it would be really important. I know we're getting long on time, but important to touch on this topic. You mentioned penology. You earlier mentioned how there is a sanction attached to violations mm -hmm. of the law necessarily. So how are we supposed to think about uh, penology? How do we apply that today? Maybe some, some comments on that quickly mm -hmm. as we wrap up. Okay, so very quickly. First of all, um, it's important to take careful attention of the text itself in the Old Older Testament when... Um, when the standing law, when the Decalogue is being positivized um, by, well, of course, it's positivized in a sense by God first in the Decalogue, um, and then human beings have to positivize it in the cases. And when you look at uh, the, the Older Testament carefully, you'll notice that um, the, 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 the lex talionis um, is, is, is basically mean the eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Essentially, it doesn't mean somebody hits you and you knock a tooth out, go punch them until they've, until they've got a tooth missing. It means the punishment must fit the crime. How do we know what punishment fits the crime? Well, we know by the positivization of God's law uh, in Israel first as the beginning of case law and the legal precedent that, that is set. And then how the fullness of the meaning of that law unfolds. Second of all, you'll notice when you look carefully at the Older Covenant uh, and the case laws in the Older Testament, that there were a variety of uh, punishments available to the magistrate. Um, corporal punishment, uh, so uh, basically the, 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 the cane, the whip, um, that was practiced till very, very recently. Uh, that, and actually, it was interesting. Um, some years ago, a survey was done of Canadian prisoners who asked if they would, would want to do prison time or or, or um, uh, take the rod. Um, they'd have take, taken the rod. Hmm. Um, so corporal punishment um, is was one route. Another route was um, financial com compensation. Uh, so working off the, the 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 crime to the victim in terms of uh, f financial compensation, um, and then of course there was um, the uh, for capital crimes, for very serious crimes, there could be banishment, exile, um, or the death penalty. And only in the case of first degree murder do we find a mandatory requirement for the death penalty. So so uh, first degree murder in the in the case law of the Old Covenant requires the death penalty. Um, uh, everything else, there's latitude for the magistrate. So that's the first thing. It's not a law, and, and these cases are not wooden, right? That's the idea of common law, case law. There's not some sort of wooden application because cases differ. So when people say, oh, well, look at the, uh, the punishments, the penology required for sexual crimes in the Bible, it's far too harsh. Well, for most of um, 
the history of Europe, the pagans had much harsher laws around sexual offences than the Bible does. And even in England uh, through to about the 17th, even at times uh, the 18th century, some there were some 200, 250 uh, death penalties. The Bible has nowhere near as many, more like 19 or 20. So when you look actually in the context of the whole history of law, the uh, the the biblical penalties available to the magistrate are light and humane. Mutilation is mutilation, torture. These are all forbidden. For example, um, even if you think about um, uh, the the West in the United States, the early West, um, if you were a horse thief, a cattle rustler, you could face the death penalty. Mm-hmm. People were hung for that. Um, well, God's law requires financial uh, restitution yeah. mm-hmm. uh, and uh, uh, and not the death penalty for for theft of cattle or horses or whatever. Um, so. Each case, that's the point of case law, common law, is that because cases are different, you don't, the law doesn't just say, here's the crime, here's the penalty, it's fixed. No, there is, there is latitude, there's interpretation because cases differ. So that's really important too. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what's the nature of, of, of the function of a penalty in any society? Well, you talk about the precept and the penalty. The penalty illustrates the value of the precept. Mm-hmm. which is to say you know how significant or important a law is or how serious an offense is by the severity of the penalty. Right. So if for uh, you know jaywalking, the penalty is death, what would you say yeah. about that culture? Well, wow, yeah. these people really think the movement of traffic uh, is <laughs> critically important. I mean, that's like one of the most important things in that society mm-hmm. is traffic flow. Mm-hmm. Um Whereas actually in our culture for jaywalking, you know, if you, you, if you, if you get more than a telling off by a police officer, you'll get a, you'll get a fine, mm-hmm. a small fine. Um, but what if the penalty for rape or for murder, mm-hmm. let's, take the, let's take rape, for example, which was punishable by death into the 50s in Canada. What if the penalty for rape was 100 bucks? Mm-hmm. What would that teach people in our culture about the value of women? Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would say... They've got no value, mm-hmm. and we don't care about the family, and we don't care about the integrity of the family. So we would say that was a family-hating, woman-hating culture. Mm-hmm. And so actually, when you see uh, increasing um, toleration of severe crimes, murder, rape, and so on, kidnap, um, sexual slavery, enslavement, being treated lightly, uh, you are seeing a change of values in that culture. Mm-hmm. So law tells us about the values of a culture and the precept with the penalty, the penalty attached to the precept tells us the value of the precept. Uh, what it, it teaches us values, in other words. It teaches us what, and this is why biblical law has played such an important role in the history of the West, is it keeps before the people. It's why we displayed the Ten Commandments on the walls of our crown courts. It's why we displayed the law of God historically in our churches. It's why our church liturgies, the communion liturgy, would have a recitation weekly of the law of God, is because by keeping the standing law, God's law, in front of the people, we're taught what to value. And that also makes us receptive to the gospel, because as we Mm. talked about last week, Sin is lawlessness. Mm-hmm. Satan is the lawless one. Christ comes to redeem us from all lawlessness. So if we do not know what the law is, Paul says, I would not know sin but by the law. So a culture that's aware of God's law, and that's why it's incremental. We, the law spreads. The law, the law teaches. This is how Wilberforce, William Wilberforce, the great evangelical reformer in England, thought about the law. Nobody thinks, no, none of us think that 
you're going to be saved and redeemed by the law. Mm -hmm. But by recognizing sin, by keeping the virtues, the values, the law of God in front of people, we learn our need of these various functions of the law come to fulfillment. We learn our need of Christ. It becomes a schoolmaster. It takes us, it leads us to Christ, as Paul says. It is a measure of our sanctification as Christians, and it restrains wickedness. It restrains evil. And of course, we're talking about penology, which is a civil application of the law, and it teaches their values. So when you have a death penalty attached to rape, like in Canada through to the 50s, it teaches you something about the value of women. Mm -hmm about the value of marriage, about the value of the family. When Oliver Cromwell's government in 1650 instituted the death penalty for adultery, do you know how many people in that 10-year period were executed for adultery in England? Hmm. Zero. Zero. But we know from records that that period, the Cromwellian period, was the lowest rates of illeg illegitimacy in the history of the nation because it teaches values. So um, there's latitude for the magistrate. Uh, we have to positivize this law in our own time, but we've got the case law. We've got the common law beginning with Moses and the common law tradition. And Calvin cautioned on this that we dare not be more lenient on these things than the pagans, right? Um, so the the Massachusetts Bay Colony, look at John Cotton's laws. I mentioned them for, for New England. You can see how Christians positivized the law. And if we are going to see um, a recovery for the gospel, a recovery for our nation, then it's going to involve, and it must include, an incremental mm -hmm. reappreciation, mm -hmm. renewed appreciation for the law of God in the church, amongst believers, valuing and celebrating, singing about the law of God like the psalmist does in Psalm 119, mm -hmm. being grateful for, for the, the freedom, the liberty, the joy that God's law brings to us, honoring what Jesus said himself about not setting aside the commands of God, the word of God, because of our traditions, mm -hmm. our cultural preferences. And it will involve, over time, uh, as people come to the faith and recognize Christ and the, the blessing and the goodness of his law, mm. a steady, not repealing the law, God's law, like we've been doing for the last 60 years in Canada, but actually reinstituting again over time the law of God for the blessing of the nation. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much, Joe, for all of that. We've certainly noticed an increased interest in God's law and its faithful application to culture today here at the ministry, mm -hmm. uh, as we've had many people, like, like we've said, reaching out with questions and comments. There are a lot of people really, truly grappling with these issues. Uh, so we hope this conversation has been very helpful for people as we sort through this and try to apply God's law faithfully. And uh, that's all the time we have for today's episode. So thank you very much for listening and continuing to support the work of our ministry. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, this is part three of our conversation on God's law. So please go back and, and listen to those episodes if you'd like a bit more and thank you again for joining us. This has been the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute, reminding you that from him, through him, and to him are all things. To God be the glory. Amen.